the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Commodore Nick Osborne joined the RAAF in 2002, having served 20 years in the Royal New Zealand Air Force as a pilot. While in the New Zealand Air Force, he flew Skyhawk and Mackie jets and served on exchange at RAAF Pierce, also flying Mackie and PC-9 aircraft. During his flying career, he accumulated over 5,500 hours, mostly in jets. He joined the RAAF following the disbandment of the Air Combat Force in New Zealand. During his time in the RAAF, Nick flew Hawks at Williamtown and from 2008 to 2010, he was appointed as the commanding officer of 76 Squadron. Following a three-year tour as the executive officer of 78 Wing, he was posted to Headquarters Air Command, where he served as the Director of Capability. Nick was posted to Surveillance and Response Group as Chief of Staff in October of 2018, before taking up the position of Commander Surveillance and Response Group on the 28th of May in 2021. Nick has served as the Special Assistant to the Deputy Head of the United Nations Mission in Kosovo in 2000. He also served in Afghanistan as the Commander of the Heron Remotely Piloted Aircraft Detachment in Kandahar in 2012-2013. Nick enjoys supporting the All Blacks. He coaches and umpires netball and is President of the ADF Netball Association. Nick is married to Sue and has two daughters and a granddaughter. Well, Nick, it's great to have your company. Thanks for joining the series of podcasts for the RAAF. You're welcome, mate. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, when you were in New Zealand, because you're a New Zealander, um, what turned you on to the Air Force? Where did your love of planes start and why? Oh, look, I... I always loved aviation. I can remember even as a young kid liking aeroplanes uh, and seeing them, and I was always fascinated with, in particular, military aviation. And, you know, as a young kid, I was making model aeroplanes all the time. So I can't remember what started it. I just remember always being fascinated with it. Oh, that's that's good. And so how difficult was it to get into the Air New Zealand, the Air Force in New Zealand? The thing that really got me there, I guess, is is when I left school, I was I kind of did a gap year equivalent, although in those days that term didn't exist, um, and I was actually cutting down trees. So you know, for real, I was a lumberjack. <laughs> and where I was uh, chopping down trees was part of the low flying area and the local airbase. And I used to watch these aeroplanes flying overhead and thought that's pretty cool. And then I went to an air show at. Uh, RNZF base Ohakia in 1981, watched a uh, formation aerobatics team uh, flying Skyhawks and went, that's what I want to do. I want to go and do that. So I literally applied the next week and 
at the end of, in fact, of August that year. So that display was in about February or March. In August that year, I was in the Air Force. And the process, you've signed up, you're in, you've gone to the first base. What were the first couple of weeks like? What, what kinds of things were you asked to do? Oh, the very first bit was is uh, you know all about learning to be in the military and doing uh, the sort of things that an officer in the air force would learn to do, like know how to iron your clothes. Uh, <laughs> just some really strange stuff that I guess a lot of people have never been through. You know, I was lucky my my mother had taught me how to do that stuff, uh, but it was also protocols, how to have dining ins, how to you know appropriate forms of dress, and then all the organisation or what the organisation looked like. So. First of all, what we do in the RAF, uh, RAAF, I'd say. Yeah, so the the discipline is ingrained almost from day one in terms of what to follow and how to do it. Absolutely, and it's all about teamwork, you know, putting on the uniform, being part of a, a uniformed uh, collective, if you like. And what kinds of planes were your first experiences? The very first aircraft we got into was the uh, CT-4B uh, air trainer. Uh, which is you know, a little piston engine, two-seater aircraft, sort of militarised in a way because it had the joystick in it rather than um, a, a kind of a steering wheel. And a little 200-horsepower engine. That was still a, a lot more powerful than most of the civilian sort of light aircraft around it. We could do full aerobatics, and, and that, that's what we started training on. and did nine months on that before moving up to RNZF Base Ohakia and getting into the... the um, BAC Strike Master, a side-by-side jet aircraft. Was that the first jet you flew? That was the first jet I flew. What was that first experience like behind, when you compare it to the prop to the jet? Oh, just complete excitement, the acceleration of the aircraft. It was an old aircraft, but the sheer acceleration of a jet aircraft and the speed at which it travelled, uh, it, it was just fantastic. It was just exhilarating. Yeah, I want to know a little bit about what the Air Combat Force was before it was disbanded. What did that involve? Okay, so uh, in the uh, RNZAF we had, uh, when I first started, I went to 75 Squadron, which was a squadron of, of Skyhawks, the A4K at that time was, and we only had the single squadron, and we just you know went and did sort of fighter-type stuff. But in 1984, we we bought the X. RAN Skyhawks as well mm-hmm. when they disbanded over here. We took those back and we formed a second squadron which became a, a, a training squadron for um, the Air Combat Force. And you know, I flew in there for a, for a couple of years. Uh, in between that, I, I, I went to a few other places, came on exchange over here, uh, went back to New Zealand and then ended up flying at two squadron at Albatross down at Nowra. Nowra, yep. Where we bought our jets over there and we ran our conversion courses from there. And so. what was the relationship like, uh, Air New Zealand, Australian Air Force, the personnel and the co- inter-cooperation between the two? What was it like in those exchanges? Oh, very, very close. You know, the true ANZAC spirit, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. Um we all had a, a clear and common goal, I think, of of mateship, and there was the usual, you know, the usual sort of things you'd have with with brothers of, of uh, <laughs> fighting over who was going to support which team and, and you know which I, was the best beer. Yeah, I see all blacks written all over uniform. I think. <laughs>
Yeah, that'd be fair to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we won't talk about rugby just at the moment. Um, the airplanes that uh, the Air New Zealand force had, did they buy them from the United States or did they buy them from Australia? What was the? How did you acquire the, the planes that you used? Okay, so the mainly uh, for the Skyhawks, they came secondhand from uh, the US, uh, and they were bought out on a carrier and then. Uh, all, all wrapped up and then lifted off the carrier, put onto trucks and shipped uh, through Auckland before they were put together. So most of our acquisition, for, well, those, that acquisition was all through the, the US. Uh, when we upgraded them in the early 90s and late 80s, that, that was all with United States systems. And right. It, um, uh, but mainly done, most of it was done in New Zealand, but with, New Ze- uh, with um, US equipment. I understand, I understand. And how many years were you actually in the New Zealand Air Force? I was in the you know, US, sorry, US, New Zealand Air Force um, for 20 years and three months. That's a, a long history and it must, must have been a little bit sad for you when eventually you had to leave. Yeah, look, it's it's kind of interesting. At the time, uh, there was a real sense of betrayal of the uh, New Zealand public for us. But the pragmatic part, of me went well. Actually, it's a it's, they've made a the government's made a decision. Let's get on with it. Um, my brother-in-law put it into perspective for me. He said, "You're really lucky," you know. And I went, oh, "I don't know how," but he said, "Well." You've, you've got this other door across the Tasman that you can just walk right through. He said, uh, it's a whole new opportunity for you, a whole new adventure, and you know, millions of people would never get that opportunity. And when he put it into that light, I went, yeah, you're dead right, actually. I've, I've got nothing to be mm. concerned or worried about. It's, I'm really lucky. So, so. W- would that have been – I mean, how did that process work? Was it an automatic transmission from New Zealand to Australia or did you have to go through something else to get in? How did it occur? Okay, so so uh, obviously the Chief of Air Forces had had a bit of a discussion and I would say it was kind of a gentleman agreement saying, we've got a whole lot of people that will be available to the Royal Australian Air Force should you need them. So they set up a cell in Wellington, kind of a recruiting cell, a very streamlined cell that went, you know, effectively said, hey, we'll, we'll put our name in the hat, you know, put an expression of interest in to join the RAAF and they, uh, the RWF had ready access to all our documentation. Uh, they gave us the process by which we had to go through. And it was literally uh, you know, a three-month process to transfer, mm. which would normally take you know, a year or more. So very easy process. The good thing was when I came over here, having been in already in, uh, on exchange at Pierce in the late 80s and in Nowra in the uh, mid-90s, um, I already had um, you know, a Medicare card, I had an Australian driver's licence, I had an Australian bank account, an Australian tax file number. So, you know, when I first got over here and the admin cell said, told me I had to get a whole bunch of stuff done, I just said, I've done I've it. Got it all. Yeah, I've yeah, done it. <laughs> Maybe yeah, Australia- all I need you to do is give me a uniform and start paying me. Maybe Australia should be a, become a state of New Zealand rather than the other way around. <laughs> yeah, we almost yeah. are, actually. Look, yeah. I, I've got to ask, I don't want to go over bad coals, but the Air Combat Force was disbanded. Why? 
Oh, look, at the time, it was, it seemed like a purely political uh, um, move, and I guess it always was, you know, but there was a significant financial pressure on the New Zealand defence budget and effectively what the previous um, national government, you know, the Liberal government, had done was over-committed to buying a whole bunch of stuff. Right. And when the Labour government got in there, uh, I think effectively what they did was they you know, opened up the, the the cupboard and went, we can't afford to do all this. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you think about New Zealand, it's surrounded by the world's largest moat. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was pretty hard to convince the public that we needed a fighter force to defend the country. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah. Well, we, we won't we won't dwell on that. I, I, I've been led to believe that you've had something like five thousand five hundred hours in jets. Is that r- yeah. close to being the case? Yeah, pretty. Yeah, it's about right. Yeah. Can you just take us through some of the experiences in some of those jets and and make a comparison for us, so someone listening to you right now who doesn't understand planes can think, "Oh, that. Oh, I understand that." So, w- what was your favourite and why? I oh, look. I, I think you know the New Zealand Skyhawk will always be my favourite. Uh, it was uh, it was nimble. It was a fantastic roll rate. It wasn't you know by by modern comparisons, wasn't the most powerful aircraft, but. You know, we'd we'd fly around at, at 50 feet above the ground or or above the water at you know, 450 knots, which is nearly you know 850 kilometres an hour, uh, and then we'd go up high and we could you know go f- fighting each other and, and the classic dog fights that you kind of hear about. Uh, you know, a lot of manoeuvring. It was just an exciting time, and there was only two real. You know, there was that and the Air Mackie, which uh, and, and the, the Air Mackie New Zealand, and over here the British Aerospace Hawk. Hawk, yeah. As yeah. far as jets were going, and they were just, but the Skyhawk was a first love. You know, yeah, like it, it was just so exciting, and and it, you know, if you look at it, it's kind of a a, bit, a small but rugged looking. You know, it's it's kind of like the hooker in a front row of rugby. If you, uh, <laughs> you know. I knew you'd come back to rugby eventually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's all right. I understand what you mean. So that all that is and always will remain your favourite plane to fly. Yeah, it will be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you've come to Australia, you uh, sent almost straight to Williamtown. How did that process occur? Uh, yeah, I went straight. To, I was effectively recruited as a flying instructor. Uh, and so I went straight into 76 Squadron at, at RAF Base, Williamtown, okay. and, uh, to fly the Hawk. And yeah. your role also there was to train others to fly? Absolutely, yep. So uh, that that was the primary role. Uh, I mean, it was a training unit. That, that's what we did. We did some other support for Army and Navy, uh, you know, just provided them target-type type opportunities. Sure. But, yeah, the primary role was to train upcoming fighter pilots and the, and the skills and art. So when you're training someone for the... I mean, let's take two people. Someone who immediately sits in the plane and almost seems like a natural versus someone who sits in the plane and looks like they should be in a car instead of a plane. What do you say to each of those people? What do you say to the person that's a natural and what do you say to the person that's chosen the wrong career? 
Well, you don't really have to say too much to the person who's a natural. Um, that we, we use the same training process, right? So they go through the same uh, activities. We don't differentiate between you know the naturally skilled guy and the person who who hasn't got so many skills. Yeah. But to be fair, it's it would the because we're kind of near the end of the training system, it would be very rare to get somebody who is a car driver rather than a pilot. Now, some of them don't necessarily develop their skills as fast as we want to, uh, to in the fighter world. And, and some of them, uh, you can tell they're more attuned to perhaps being um, you know, a transport pilot, but more methodical about what they do. Sure, and, sure. and the ability to recognize the changing pictures in a, in a dynamic environment of a dogfight equivalent mm, mm. and react quick enough to be effective is one of the things that we really look for. And oh. Sometimes people will see the difference but can't react to it and others will react to the wrong picture change. So I would have assumed, not being a pilot, but I would have assumed it would be the elite of the elite who turn out to be an effective fighter pilot as opposed to a person who's flying, for example, I'm not making this in any disparaging way, but flying a Hercules or or something else. So in that process of training, was it your role to direct the person you were training into another form of flight or was it all directed only at fighter pilots? My role was all directed at fighter pilots, but I, I will take to take you to task on that elite of the elite. I mean, I think that's a very common misconception uh, that, you know, and Top Gun certainly didn't help with that. Um, you're the best of the best of the best sort of thing. Sure. But it, it's just different, right? There is a, It's a different mindset and a different way of operating. Uh, there will be, you know, you could not necessarily put a the world's best fighter pilot into a, um, a Hercules or a C-17 and go, right, go and land on that dark strip in the middle of the night. Yeah, uh, it, it's man, just yeah. a different asset. And, of course, you know, some people are more orientated to a team uh, a cockpit type and are very, very effective at it. So, you know, I'd, I'd be, you know, as much as I'd like to believe that, you know, I'm, you know, one of the elite of the elite. I think. <laughs> okay, okay. When, when you're young, yes. As you get older, you learn that that's not the case. Okay, well, let me put that another way then. Within both in New Zealand and also Australia, as far as air forces are concerned, as a person is going through the process of, of becoming a pilot, is it the are there elements below your level where you say, all right, you've got the, the aptitude to be an effective Hercules pilot, you've got the aptitude to be an effective F-35A pilot? Is that process occur much earlier on than when they get to you? Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah that's correct. They do. They move. Uh, that happens. So they're streamed before they get to those areas, uh, and it's not necessarily streamed to be better than others, but stream to be more suitable for a role. I think that's a, okay. that's a really good way of summing it up. And you're, am I right in saying that you actually did a three-year tour as the executive officer of 78 Wing? Yes, yeah, that, that's correct. Yep. Tell us yep. about that. Uh, look, 78 Wing is the headquarters that supports the flying training, uh, the Hawk flying training system. So, you know, that was a... That was kind of an interesting job. It was my field first real staff 
uh, job in a headquarters. So there's a bit of learning on there. Uh, out of the flying room, I still went flying, but I didn't do nearly as much flying. But that's the that's the time when you really need to develop your personal relationships uh, with the team that works in the the units uh, to try and get them to do what they should be doing as opposed to what they want to be doing. Mm. Uh, and that, that took a little bit of finessing because you know, my boss was the officer commanding of the wing and he'd say something and you know, occasionally that was just an invitation to an argument. <laughs> so so I, it was kind of my job to go in and put my arms around my peer group because we're the same rank and go, you know, perhaps he has a good idea. You know, maybe we should be doing it that way. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's what most of it was about, actually. Uh, I, I've believed, Nick, of all these interviews that I've been privileged enough to do now that the notion of team, there's no I in team and uh, a fighter pilot, for argument's sake, is not the only person involved. There's a team that makes that plane ready uh, and everyone relies on everybody else. So the, the notice of teammanship seems to be endemic within both air forces. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's uh, it's not just in the air force, right? It's in any... I think that's one thing that attracts people to the military is that it's very much about that the team, that mateship is part of the team, you know, and uh, I think that's that's exactly how we should be looking at it because, you know, as soon as you get down to being an individual as part of the team, you will feel that you are outside of that loop. Yeah, yeah. Nick, uh, you have the, the title of Commander Surveillance and Response Group. Can you please tell me what that means? Oh, okay. well... I don't anymore. Oh, well, I'm, you were. What, I yeah. still want to know what it meant. <laughs> yeah. So um, surveillance and response group is one of the force element groups in the Air Force. It's uh, uh, about just over two and a bit thousand people, um, you know, men and women. And we, we have four different wings. One wing flies the E-7 Wedgetail, um, which is the um, surveillance aircraft with the, the surfboard on top has a great radar that looks out uh, you know, several hundred kilometres. Uh, we have another wing that looks after the maritime response. That's with the P-8, the Poseidon. Mm-hmm. We have the air traffic control under one wing, so that's the defence air traffic control system, looks after all the, the defence uh, airfields. And we have the uh, 41 wing, which looks after the over-the-horizon radar and space surveillance. So four very different wings. As the commander, uh, it was really my job to ensure that we were we were pulling together to for a common uh, aim point to in support of of defence's strategy uh, and you know what the government wanted of us. Mm, mm. Uh, unlike other wings, you know, for instance, you have an air mobility wing which flies transport aircraft. Surveillance and Response Group had all four different wings that did different things. So that required just making sure that I had a kind of a good span across them to make sure they were all doing the right place. But having said that, I had four very good wing officer commanding, so I didn't have to monitor them. It was kind of like give them them a bit of guidance and then sit back and let them do it. I dare say that probably it's uh, it's one of the easiest groups to run because you have 
four very good OCs doing four different things. Mm, mm. The Australian Air Force, the RAAF, and no doubt the New Zealand Air Force, but let's stay with the RAAF for the moment, uh, given that it's only just recently celebrated its centenary. It has been engaged in so many activities across the planet for so many years, and one in particular that I do want to focus on, I know in Kosovo, in response to massive attacks on the Kosovo Albanian population, including orchestrated ethnic cleansing, NATO conducted an 11-week air campaign. Now, you became involved in this area, and I believe you were the deputy head of the United Nations mission to Kosovo. How did you get involved? What was it like, and what can you reflect on? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, just I'll just correct that. I was the special assistant to the deputy head, so the special military assistant to the deputy head okay. of the UN. So, uh, and I, I got that when I was in the New Zealand Air Force uh, as part of a UN position that we sent up there. Now, that was just after the war had finished. So I was up there in 2000, and the UN was in there during the reconstruction phase. Yep. Uh, the the deputy head that I worked for was the direct liaison between K4, which was the military force in there, and the UN. And so I worked for him as a, you know, almost as a, Oh, let's say a translator between military speak and UN speak. It was one of the most fascinating uh, events I've ever had. You know, it, six months up there when during the winter it was minus 40 and during the summer it was plus 40. Uh, wow. And working for an organisation where the UN were desperately trying to do that every person in the UN wanted to do the best that they could for the people but it was a behemoth of an organisation with massive inertia and a lot of very different countries with different views about how things should be done so so I was very impressed watching the UN hierarchy both the head of the mission and the deputy head uh, you know, doing the machinations of keeping the, the political side of it going inside the country and also the political side of the UN being structured to try and try and keep it. It was just a fascinating experience. And what were, what were you, obviously you were in uniform, yes? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So how were you received uh, by the Kosovo Albanians? Because you must have been mixing with them. What was that relationship like? It, that was, um, it was... It was almost unreal and humbling to be walking down the street and having old men and women come up to you and just give you a hug um, because we were seen you know, as, a, as a military member that's been seen as the saviour of their you know, Albanian um, mm. uh, Kosovars. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was really quite an emotional time. To, after a while, you just got used to it. But then you realise that some of these people had been, you know, completely devastated, and we were seen as the saviour to to bring them back and create their their country for them again. Of course, the interesting bit is there are also Serbians there who, you know, didn't think exactly the same way, but they were that most of them had been pretty pushed out. There were a few. Um, Altercations of which I, I was I was never involved. I didn't see them, but I heard about them sure, through the sure. reporting system. I um, the, the the Australian and New Zealand uh, 
personnel in the Defence Forces, both countries, because we, it is an Anzac, you were right at the very start, it is an Anzac spirit, um, seem to be received so well everywhere they go in all the activities and all of the assignments overseas. And when they cooperate with the United States of America or the US, Af- US Air Force, we really do stand out as people like working with us, Australians and New Zealanders. Have you found that to be the case? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that is um, because we uh, we're very down to earth, you know, and and we we are not pretentious. We we don't put on airs about things. We just get on and and do it. And you know, I think also that whole ANZAC comradeship that pervades both societies is is received so well. Where we go somewhere be it as an Australian or as a Kiwi, and the first thing we want to do is make friends with it, with somebody yeah. and, uh, you know, teach them to play cricket or teach them to play rugby or, <laughs> or whatever it happens to be and, and get really build that team teamwork. Um, and I think that's that's so recognised around the place that, and that brings that kind of the happiness to the mm. individual and people respond to that happy uh, that happiness that we have. And uh, I think it's- now you, are, you have been both uh, a military New Zealander and uh, a, a Kiwi, ordinary citizen Kiwi. Would you yeah. say that the relationship between the Aussie and the Kiwi in the military is much closer than the relationship between the Aussie and the Kiwi ordinary citizen because they're in yeah. the military? Yes, I, I think I, I think that would be, be correct uh, and I I'd put that down to, you know, what I said earlier on about the military is very much about being teams, and we have we've got two things to it. Both both sides are very team orientated, but also we have this the common understanding about what the military does, and we have that common understanding that you know we actually may be put in harm's way for the yeah. good of yeah. our respective countries. And so yeah, I think. I think there's always going to be a common bond between any military member across the world sure. and you know, each other. So, yeah, I think that that's that's yeah. a very there is a difference here. Very important. Um, 2012 and 2013, I think commander is the right thing. You were commander Heron remotely piloted aircraft. Yeah, is that drones or what? What? What, what is that all about? Okay, the yeah, the Heron is a drone. We were operating out of Afghanistan. It was a surveillance aircraft where we were in there to support uh, mainly, you know, we say coalition forces, but it was mainly to support uh, our Australian forces. Um, so it did just under six months up in Kandahar in yep. Afghanistan. Uh, you know, another interesting place where, you know, the temperature drops to minus 20 in the summer and plus 40 in the no, sorry, minus 20 in the winter, plus 40 in the summer. Um, but, uh, you know, and just a dust bowl. But the aircraft itself was you know, a very capable aircraft for its time, unarmed, but with uh, great um, electro-optical systems that we could watch. You know, we'd sit up at 20,000 feet and, sure. and watch people on the ground. Yeah. Have there ever been debates within either Air Force about arming those drones? <laughs> And not not those ones in particular, because the heron isn't really suitable. It's not big enough to be armed. Uh, so there was no particular debate on that. There is uh, obvious, um, well, there was for until 
uh, last week, an obvious debate about us buying our own um, MQ-9 Reaper yep. uh, aircraft, which can be an armed drone. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, that that was announced last week at Senate estimates that the the government's decided not to not to buy those. Sure, sure. Do you think there is a role in the future? How far in the future, I don't know, but to have an Air Force that isn't piloted by a person but rather piloted by a machine, do you think that will ever happen? I think we have to be careful, Gareth, about talking about whether it's piloted by a machine uh, or whether it's controlled by a machine. Uh, I, I think we are always going to have to have that that person in the loop with the decision-making process. Whether the machine is automatic, in which case you know, we tell it what to do and it just goes and does it, yeah. or autonomous, where it makes up its own mind what it's going to do, I think we get... We, we run into that very difficult decision process of artificial intelligence and yeah, how much yeah, yeah. does it know. You know, it's the, do we let the Tesla run over somebody because it doesn't want to run over somebody else? That sort of discussion. Understand. How does it make that decision? Understand. Uh, it, it is my view. Uh, I'm not going into the area of Star Wars and Star Trek, but it is my view that for, for a long time into the foreseeable future, we'll have a person sitting in a jet piloting that jet rather yeah. than... Well, look, and and I don't know if we need to be sitting in the jet piloting, but we need to be sitting somewhere controlling it. Uh, So those science fiction movies I see with someone sitting in a a closed room actually flying a plane that they're not in, that's conceivable? Well, well, that's what we do now. I mean, the the drones and things that are flying around is effectively someone sitting in a, a cabin flying the drone, not fighting it, not doing a combat in it, but that's that's only a degree of uh, how much um, information and accurate information we can get to the pilot sitting in the seat. Sure. Um, and with modern aircraft, where so much information comes to them through external sensors anyway, then effectively they're just looking at the, the computer-aided imagery that they have in the cockpit to provide them with that the ability to target. Yeah. If I ask you just to reflect on the many years' career you've now had with both Air Forces. What are two things that stand out for you as very cherished memories in those Air Forces? Two things. Oh. Oh, two things. Uh, I think both of them are the deployment, the, the the deployment of the Kiwi Air Force to Kosovo, and working for the UN and supporting that. A very very cherished memory there. And the other one is uh, operating uh, the Heron over in Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, yeah. So so those are the two memories I will. I will I will take away uh, as really cherish. I cherish them because I really felt like I contributed to something in yeah, the global yeah. order then. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I've got to talk about your personal interests and likes. Uh, you have two daughters and a lovely wife. What are the, daughter, yeah. what are the daughter's yep. names? Uh, my uh, older daughter is Kiri and the younger one is Cassandra. And the granddaughter is to whom? Which of those two girls? Uh, to to Kitty, the older one. So yep. I've got a granddaughter, Amaya. She's uh, three on Friday, and a grandson, Nico. Oh, grandson is, as uh, well. Well done. Grandson, yeah. And he's um, five the following week. You see yeah. a future pilot in both of those two grandchildren? 
no. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask you, uh, with that a long career in the Air Force, uh, your wife Sue, how has she coped? Oh, she's she's coped. She's been very very supportive. Although I coped really well all the way through. Uh, she found it a little bit difficult coming over here from New Zealand uh, because, you know, she had to build up a whole new friendship network. Uh, and that took a little bit of time until our kids got started at school. Yeah. yeah. And then she built up that network from, from school. So, um, so you know, she found that a bit hard. Uh, also, you know, when I was in um, Afghanistan, away for a few months, it was over Christmas. Our younger daughter was going in year 11 at school. And, you know, and, of course, teenage daughters, they know everything. Yes. Mothers yes. mothers never were that young, so what would they know? Um, so, so she finds that bit hard. But, um, no, she's, uh, she's very supportive about everything I do. And sometimes, you know, she, occasionally she is that guided sort of, that I need to go, you should go and do that. Yeah, know? good, yeah. I know, it's, <laughs> I know it's a really boring thing to go and talk to those people, but go and talk to them. They'll, you know, they'll appreciate it. I, I've got to ask you the last question. Um, do you think the uh, Australian rugby team will ever beat the All Blacks? Yes, actually, I do. And um, I wouldn't say I'm dreading it, but... Uh, the more it's the the more the longer it takes to happen, the the more it's going to hurt when it does happen. <laughs> but, um, look, I I think you know I think the um, next not this year, but I think next year the uh, Wallabies going to have a strong team. They've they've developed. They're going through a phase of redevelopment, and I think the uh, All Blacks are on their way in the other direction. I so. I. Uh... I take that on board, and I think you're only saying that because you're now part of the RAAF and not the No, I'm only joking. Look, Air yeah, Commodore... No, that's a good point, Gareth, because I'll always point out that, um, you know, I'm Australian paid, but I am still New Zealand made. Yeah. <laughs> thank goodness for New Zealand, and thank goodness for Australia, and thank goodness we are both so close. Air Commodore Nick Osborne, I want to thank you so much for your time today and also congratulate you on being such a, a worthy member of two Air Forces and now very much part of our own Royal Australian Air Force. Nick, thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Gareth. Pleasure. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. 
If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.